Thank you, Tim. Thank you, worship team. What a wonderful time of worship we have had. What a wonderful thing to have echoing in our minds right now as we come into God's Word, as we have opportunity to study together and speak about knowing Jesus and how worthy He is to be known. Uh, May that truth itself, aside from everything that we're going to talk about today, may that truth itself capture our attention here this morning. And then as we think about knowing Jesus and all of what that means, here today we talk about the ways in which, one of the ways in which he proves out his evidence at work in our own heart and life is in the expression of his love. His love not only that we are known, that we know and have received, but also the love that is then worked out in our lives and expressed toward one another. I invite you, if you would, grab your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 11, and we're going to read down through verse 18. And as we do so, and as we think about where we've been and what we are talking about, you know we've talked all about who God is and God being light and how Jesus is... Uh, ongoing work and Jesus' finished work and His uh, death on the cross for us and just the wonder of what it means to have Him and the forgiveness that's found in Him and the unity in the family of faith and the truth that we have and abiding in Him and how He works that out. And as we prepare for His arrival and His second coming, all the ways in which He is displaying that in our hearts and lives. And as we come to this passage here this morning, it is always helpful for us to address the evidence. We need reality. We need to know that what we have is real and genuine. And more than anything else, what we need to know is real and genuine love. That we really know it, that we really know what it is, and that we really know and see that expressed and lived out in our own lives. We need the love of Christ. And that in having the love of Christ, we will know what it means to love one another. So grab your copy of God's Word and read with me, if you will, 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 11. We'll read down to verse 18, and this is what we read. It says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers." But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that by the work of your Spirit and work through your word, open our eyes. Father, shine with the light of your glory upon the evidence in our own lives. And Father, for every person in here who knows Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, Father, we pray that you would reassure them of the wonder that they have received your love and Lord, that there is evidence and fruitfulness in it at work in their own lives. 
Father, for those in here who maybe have never known you, who have tried to live Christianly without Christ, Father, we pray that in this moment now, the light of your glory would shine like the noonday sun, and Father, that there would be clarity of needing to start at the beginning and come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord for the first time. Father, in each one of our lives individually, Father, teach us what it means to live in the light of your love. Shape our lives for your great glory. This we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. As we come into this passage and we really see really a phrase that's been repeated multiple times within the Gospel of John, he says it again here in verse 11. He says, for this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. Now, he's said this in chapter 2, verse 7, chapter 2, verse 24. I mean, it's been repeated over and over and over again. And what he's talking about is in the reception of the gospel message. That when somebody first heard the gospel and received Jesus as Savior and Lord, when they came to know whoever you were, wherever you were from, understanding that you were an image bearer created in the image of God and yet having rebelled against Him and having a heart in opposition to Him, that is who we were before Christ. And yet God in love sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us from the curse of the law. That not only would we know His love in the cross, but we would know His enduring love in being made His children and brought into His family. We would know the wonder of what that means through faith in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sin and rose from the dead. And we have salvation and everlasting life. And that at the moment of salvation, He puts His Holy Spirit within us. And that we can quote things one after another and talking about the fruit of the Spirit, but we can just start off real easy. But the fruit of the Spirit is, how's that start? Love. It's not as though the message of the gospel has been disconnected from actual life. It's not as though you have the message of the gospel and you can have that and there's no effect whatsoever on your life. If you have genuinely received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, there will be evidence in your life. And one of the clearest evidences of that is love. This has been repeated from the beginning. This has always been connected that the gospel itself shapes our life and how we think and how we relate to one another. How you think about your marriage and how you think about your parenting and how you think about relating to society and everything else. And most especially how we relate to one another within the body of Christ. We are a family of faith. For all who know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, we're a family. This is the message we've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. And the love, the, even the word that's being used here, is more than just sort of sentimental affection. It's not like sending somebody a little kitty cat emoji with little hearts coming out of its head or something. This is love that lays down its life, self-sacrificial love, agape love. And you think about this and you start from the beginning, you start from your understanding of love and that if we're any conception of love that does not start with the gospel of Christ is going to go astray. But you think of His steadfast love that endures forever, that not only saves us, but sanctifies us and walks with us and stays with us. And so you think of every selfish and rebellious time you've had in your life. And even still, He's never been ashamed to love us. Even still, He's never cast us aside. 
In our worst of moments, his light shines like the noonday sun. Never lets go. Never backs up. But you have to know the love of Christ to get this right. Because you can't have the ethics of Jesus without Jesus. He says, you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. And see, he's making specific application within where we are within the text here today. In terms of brothers and sisters in Christ. Part of that means is that we lay down our preferences. Sometimes things that we maybe want that aren't necessary for the benefit of somebody else and their sanctification and growth in Christ, we've got to lay those things down. We love with kindness and patience and endurance and commitment. We love with the truth and holding people accountable and saying, we, we're not going to let you go astray. We're going to call you back and, and call you to reconcile. Love by pursuing what is best for somebody. Which for anybody who's a parent, you know that pursuing what is best for somebody isn't always necessarily what the children want. He says, this is the message we've heard from the beginning. We should love one another. And see, oftentimes in life we learn by example, don't we? And one of the things about life is not only do we learn by positive example, we also learn by negative example. We learn when there's circumstances when it's like, here's what not to do. And that's exactly where the text takes us. Because in verse 12, we're told, he says, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Here's what loving one another does not look like. Now, this is an interesting biblical illustration here, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. I mean, this is way, way, way back. And you think of what was going on in the time. You think of Cain and Abel, and there they are, and they have opportunity to bring an offering to the Lord, and Abel's offering was accepted, and Cain's was not. And you look at what was going on within the text, and Cain really treated the Lord like he was an afterthought. Even in the text in verses 6 and 7, God graciously warns Cain about this. Calls him to repentance. And yet Cain gets angry about it. And his anger that he could not lash out against the Lord was ultimately poured out upon his brother, Abel. He killed him. He murdered him. He says, we should not be like Cain, who, look at how he's described, was of the evil one. Who was without faith, who was not trusting, who was by nature a child of wrath. Who needed to repent, who needed to trust, who needed to not treat the Lord like an afterthought. Who needed to understand his love and let that be the starting point for the expression of his love to his brother. But instead, no, he murdered his brother. Whatever that is, it is not love. And that ultimately we see that without the love of God in our hearts, we will not love one another. So that when you start looking around in your life for the evidence, is it there? 
Can you see it? Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. There was some jealousy there, wasn't there? There was some shame there, wasn't there? There was anger that was then poured out because of that because there's a clear distinction and difference between right and wrong. But none of us like to be shown up, do we? Get out and playing sports or whatever else and somebody shows you up and what happens? You get mad about it. People start slamming the ball around, storming off. Sometimes it happens at work. We don't like it when somebody shows us up. We don't like it when that happens. And what we realize here is that doing right, all Abel did was, he did what was right. But by doing right, it actually exposed what was evil. See, Abel believed and worshipped. Cain's evil, unbelieving heart was exposed, and frauds don't like to be exposed. And so instead of repentance... There was retaliation. And see, when we read this, not only should we think, Lord, don't let me be like that, but it ought also to prepare our hearts for the fact that just in the way of Abel in doing good can lead to a visceral response. Following Christ, loving one another, seems like such a Great thing to do, and it is. Don't be surprised when people hate it. Don't be surprised when the outside, unbelieving world who don't know Christ and don't want anything to do with Him, who are opposed to Him in every way, look at the church caring for one another, and they hate us because of it. We're told, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Because the mere presence of his love is exposing evil. And that's uncomfortable, isn't it? And we read this and he says, well, do not be surprised or do not be amazed. And one of the most helpful things about the fact that this is in here is that we read this and we are surprised by it, aren't we? Even though Jesus repeatedly told us, don't be surprised if they hated me. They're going to hate you. Even though we clearly read it here in the text, don't be surprised. We are. Like, how can you hate us? Don't you see what's going on here? Don't you see we're just loving one another? Don't we see that loving one another involves caring for one another in the truth and that we're doing all these things? Why do you hate us? Why is there so much hostility and hatred? It seems so unexplainable until we realize the fact That this love is exposing their sin and their need for Jesus. And people don't like that. Matter of fact, I don't think anybody in here likes to be told, well, you're wrong. Do we? Even if we know we're wrong, we start to bounce back from that, don't we? Like, well, you're wrong, well... You know, we'll even start to say something even though we know good and well we're wrong. It's just in us to do that. How much more so in this circumstance? He's saying, don't be surprised that the world hates you. See, this is helpful because we all like to know about things ahead of time. That's why when, you know, when you were 
having your children and that sort of thing, there's a little book. It's actually not a little book. It's a big old book called What to Expect When You're Expecting, right? And it goes through like week by week of all the things that you can expect with all the gestational development and all the wonders of what that means and everything. Why? Because you want to know what's coming around the corner. We like to know those things. We want to know what, what's going to happen. When we sit down with the doctor and the doctor says, here's the situation. It's like, well, what, do you, what am I supposed to expect from all this? We want to know these things. Well, what are we supposed to expect when we love one another? When the fruit of the Spirit is at work within us and we just are living our lives to love one another. Tell you one thing that's going to happen. The world will hate us. Are we ready for that? Are we surprised by it? Hatred comes in a variety of forms. In this circumstance with Cain, it came in the form of violence. Hatred can be expressed in indifference, in mockery, in intentionally distorting the message, in scorn. And at first we're reading this, we're like, well, this is an odd place to plant this in here. Why, why should we be expecting this? Well, has anybody ever walked into your room when you were asleep and turned a flashlight on and shined it in your face? Was that well received? Probably not. But here we are as children of the light, with the light of the world in us, working through us, a city set on a hill that is not hidden, shining the light of Christ into this world. There will be times when all the good things that we do will be viscerally attacked. And he's telling us, don't be surprised that people who are in the darkness and think that their deeds are hidden hate us for shining the light of Christ. It's a reminder for all of us that we are not Jesus' PR firm. It's not our job to make the the gospel palatable. We're told that the gospel is offensive. Not in a way that we're just intentionally trying to hurt people's feelings. But in a way that exposes sin and points people to the only hope, the only love, the only love that's genuine. And so as we care for one another and love one another within this world, don't let the unbelief of others hinder your obedience in following Christ. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. We know, believers, as you enjoy salvation, as you enjoy the truth, as you have the gospel being proved out in your life, we know we've passed from death into life because we love the brothers. Love for brothers and sisters in Christ is clear evidence that you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. It's just at work in you. That you've passed out of it. The, the, text, the Greek text, you could say that you have changed your address. You've moved from one to the other, out of death and into life. The change of address has been formalized through faith in Christ. And you can say, look, here's the proof that I've moved. There's love. We love the brothers. See, loving 
Brothers and sisters in Christ is not the cause of our salvation. We're saved by grace through faith. It's a free gift of God so that no one may boast. But love is an indicator that you are alive in Christ. And what assurance of salvation we are being provided here. See, what's sad is so many people struggle with the assurance of their faith, not realizing that it's, it's Jesus rescues us out of the darkness and into his marvelous light, not so that we'll stand in front of the mirror and look for assurance there, but that in looking to one another, saying, how can I serve you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? And then we see how assurance just wells up from there. Look at how he has provided for us. And it's like you look at your life, you say, well, why do I love them? Why do I love meeting together and encouraging one another all all the more as the day approaches? Why do we meet needs? Where does this desire come from? Only God could do that, couldn't he? You look around at your brothers and sisters in Christ and be like, why do I love you? I can guarantee you they're probably thinking the same thing when they look at you. Is the evidence of the work of God in our hearts. What assurance we have as we care for one another, walk with one another. It's like we look around and say, only God could do that. See, this is a very different perspective from the whole line of thinking that says, I'll have Jesus, but I don't want anything to do with Jesus' people. That whole line of thinking not only casts aside one of the ways in which God gives us the assurance of our salvation, but it also entirely misses the point. It's coming, it's approaching the church, it's approaching the body of Christ with some sort of mercenary interest. Like we're always looking around being like, what am I going to get out of this? Is that how we are supposed to care for one another? Does that lead to expressions of love in any other circumstance? In loving your spouse, if you just look at your marriage and you say, well, what am I going to get out of this? Is that really an expression of love? As you look at your children, you look at them and say, well, what am I going to get out of this? Is that really an expression of love? No, God so loved the world that he gave. He says, whoever does not love abides in death. You're either dead or alive. And it's like we're being given the vital signs here. Because in an emergency, when you call the EMS and they respond, what do they do? The first thing they show up, they look for vital signs. Are you breathing? Is there a pulse? What's your blood pressure? What's your body temperature? As you look at your life in Christ, there are vital signs. Evidences that you are alive. Love. Holiness. To not find love as he describes it here is to find death. See, we need the assurance of abiding in Christ. And that we love one another because we abide in Christ. But as you look at your own life and you examine the evidence at work in you, what do you see? Because he says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We may be reading this, we're like, wait, what? 
everyone who hates his brother is a murderer? Is it really that serious? Did Jesus ever say anything like this? In fact, he did. Matthew chapter 5. Not only that, but even as we read the the words here, he says everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. That's a specific term. And not only is this a specific term that's only used here in this verse in the New Testament and in one other place. And that's in John chapter 8 verse 44 as a description specifically of Satan himself. And that just as we would look around and we would say, If there was an unrepentant murderer, we would say there's not any love or life abiding in you. If there's hate in your heart towards your brothers and sisters in Christ, then if there's obviously no love, then you need to start to wonder, where do I need to begin? Humble, repentant, bowed before the God of all grace and asking to be reconciled to Him and forgiven that you would then become a a fountain of love that he has placed within you. We are meant to take this seriously. This is why it's such a heinous thing to refuse to forgive one another. It's why we're repeatedly taught both in the Lord's Prayer and in other places to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. To express our love in that way. To refuse to love one another with the truth. To refuse to reconcile with one another. Is exceptionally serious. Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Is it an overflow of you abiding in Him? Inspect your life because a bad tree is not going to bear bad fruit. Love one another because you abide in Jesus. Well, where does this all come from? How can we start? Well, look at what the text says in verse 16. By this we know that he laid that by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. See, love needs to be defined for us. Because left to ourselves, we do a terrible job defining it. Don't we? Look around at society and be like, well, this is love. And you're like, no, it's not. We can look at all these tiny expressions that are often made and it's like, well, this is love. Well, no, it's not. So many ways in which we use the word love are so self-serving that it's just this way of expressing, I'm going to get whatever I want. We all know that just because somebody can say, I love you, does not necessarily mean that they mean it. Real love is demonstrated. I think about this as a dad. As a dad of two daughters. And I think of them growing up and I think of Young men coming around the house, training them up and, okay, well, what does love look like? Well, if a guy looms around and he's not willing to lay down his life for the holiness 
of this young lady, then whatever else he says, he does not love you. Not according to Ephesians 5. Not according to the Bible. Using someone to love yourself is not love. See, we need this depiction laid out for us. We don't need to be left where we're doing what's right in our own eyes. By this we know love. What? That he laid down his life for us. The ultimate display of the love of God is that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We deserve wrath and hell. We have sinned against Him and His authority and He has all authority and all power in heaven and on earth and everywhere. And we have spit in His face with our idolatry and hatred and lust and pride and covetousness. Creation testifies against us and we know better. Our consciences testify against us and we know better. The Word testifies against us and we know better. And we're left in absolute abject condemnation. But... God demonstrated his own love for us in this. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here we are, wretched, poor, pitiable, blind. And Jesus in love died on the cross for our sin. He took the wrath that had our names on it. We need to have this love. Before our eyes all the time. We don't ever get over the gospel as if we move on to something else. It's the basis upon which we do everything. We like to keep what we love right in front of our faces, don't we? That's why we have wallpaper on our cell phones. That's why you have picture frames in your house. You're looking at all the people and you're like, oh yeah, I love them and they love me. You got pictures of your kids and pictures of your grandkids and pictures of your parents. We like to be reminded of all the, the love. Do we just stop and draw from the wonder that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came in the flesh, died our death, endured our hell? In our place, all out of undeserved love. And that he who loved me then loves me still. So that every time we're in need of a reminder of love, well, what does love look like? What is the ultimate display of love? Where should we go? Go to the cross of Christ. And so that not only are you reminded of the wonder of his love, but then you can turn around and look down the pew and you can see your brother and sister in Christ and be like, why should I love them? This is why. What's going to motivate us? The cross of Christ. We know love that he laid down his life for us and so we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Love like Jesus loves. That the gospel leads our love. It's not just aimlessly wandering through the woods. It is expressed in gospel love. To give what is necessary. You think of, okay, well, how could I do this? 
Well, do you know something of the truth? I can find you somebody else in here. We can find you somebody else in here who does not know what you know. Lead them in it. Walk in discipleship. Encourage somebody. Comfort somebody. Help somebody. Care for somebody. Come out of retirement to pour out the wisdom that you have hard-earned into the next generation. Look around at the needs and dive in. And I can't tell you how refreshed I've been serving as your pastor. I haven't even been here for, more, for six months yet. And I can tell you story after story after story after story after story of ways in which you have loved one another. And it's like looking around and watching and seeing, look at what God has done. Look at what God is doing. Some broken-hearted, weary person who is grieving and sorrowful. And next thing you know, they're surrounded by brothers and sisters just loving them. Being like, we're not going to go away. We're going to love you through this. What an expression here. What a picture. That the gospel is not only meant to be known, but meant to be lived. Know the love of Christ, receive the love of Christ, and live in the love of Christ. Embrace the inconvenience of it. See, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And we read this, we're like, oh great, he brought that up. If anyone has the world's goods, like what? Money? Clothing? Shelter? Any means whatever. And all of a sudden we're supposed to be looking at our lives not as what, what can I get out of this for myself, but looking at it, how can I express the love of Christ with what I have? How can I use what God has given me and leverage it to display His love? Because loving one another, as we often know, is very involved and oftentimes very messy. He says, if you have it, and you see that somebody, your brother, is in need, and you close your heart towards them, no gut-level care, that you're callous towards the need. He says, how does God's love abide? We read this, we're like, well, you can't do everything. That's true. But according to this, we can't do nothing either. We're meant to have tangible expressions of love. And you think about it within families. You can tell how well families love one another when a crisis comes, right? How families rally around one another in times of need and in seasons of difficulty. And there's, you know, children caring for parents or parents caring for children. And, and through all the hardship and affliction and difficulty and all the details of what that means. And the family just rallies around one another and says, we'll make this work. We're going to make this happen. Do we expect the same thing out of the family of faith? Do we rally around one another in that way? We who are connected not by flesh, 
but by the love of God in Jesus Christ. Ought we not expect that? That God so loved that He gave and that we would then turn around and love one another in the same way. So we're told quite plainly here, little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. It's not that you never say I love you. That's not what he's talking about. But that what we say is matched by what we do. So oftentimes it's very easy to say, oh yeah, I love you, and just pat somebody on the back and shoo them off. That's not what we're being called to here. He says, let us not love in word or talk. But with action, in deed, and in truth. You think of Jesus and his love. It wasn't just word or talk. When he was up there on the cross and he cried out from the cross that we read in John chapter 19, it is finished. That wasn't just word and talk. He actually did that. He endured the full outpouring of the wrath of God against our sin, laid down his life, and three days later took it up again in victory. He accomplished our salvation in deed and in truth. And so also we look around at one another and says, Lord, let us love one another in that way. Love like Jesus. To point them ultimately to the love of God. To encourage that friend to not give up. To love in action. To love in truth. To love with scripture. To love in in discipline and clarity and accountability. To bear weakness and walk through storms. And love like Christ. Call it how God sees it. Ultimately leading one another right back to the place where we all began. To he who is love, grace, and truth. Love one another. It's evidence of abiding in him. Love one another because he first loved us. But see, maybe you're looking in your, in your life this morning and you're looking at the evidence in your own life and you start to, you're starting to wonder, there's nothing flowing in me. You know, there's an old song that was written by William Cowper years ago. It was drawn from Zechariah chapter 13. Not only talking about the expression of God's love and our forgiveness, but actually turns into our heart's expression as well. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. All the ways and perhaps you've faked it and walked along the way in which you've pretended and everything else. And all of a sudden you need, I need, I need Jesus. I need him whose fountain and cleansing would cleanse me of my sin and cleanse me of my unrighteousness and wash me clean. That I would then turn around and have a fountain filled within me that would then flow out in love to one another. Maybe that's you this morning. Let me encourage you to go to Jesus. It doesn't have to be complicated. You simply cry out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin and rose from the dead. And Father, forgive me. And he will. 
for all of us in here who are believers. Let's live to love because he first loved us. Let's walk in the wonder of all the ways in which he has given us the expressions of the assurance of his work within us. Let our lives testify to the world and within our own body here together that we could collectively say out of love for one another, look at what God has done. May our response to him this morning be an expression of love. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, in all the goodness of your glory and grace. Father, we love to talk about complicated things. We love to talk about things that are so intricately detailed and things that often get overlooked. But Father, may we not forsake the clear testimony of Scripture that we're to love one another. And Father, in this moment now, For those who are in here whose hearts entirely are devoid of love. Father, may they run to you. May they receive your love. May they receive your forgiveness. May they receive you. In trusting in Jesus as Savior and Lord. And that in that moment, not only would you assure them of love, but Father, bear forth in them in a way that gives full expression that you're at work. That we can say, look at what God has done. Father, I thank you for the ways in which you are working this passage out in the life of this church. I thank you for Sunday school classes loving one another. I thank you for grieving brothers and sisters, grieving with one another. I thank you for the ways in which burdens are being lifted up. And Father, in all of these areas in such clear expressions of love, in this moment now, pour forth the assurance that all of this happens because we abide in you. Bear forth with greater clarity in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen.